0: The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff and management.
1: Astrology reveals insights into the greater world, its changing cycles and universal forces. Through the lens of astrology, we examine special topics and current events, investigate their meaning, and discuss solutions to personal and global problems. Welcome to Astrology The Theory of Everything with Mary Jo Weavers and Janie McCarthy. We're here to show you how astrology can be a powerful tool for self awareness and transformation. You'll be amazed how everything is interconnected when using astrology. Now, here are your hosts, Mary Jo and Janie.
2: Welcome. I am Mary Jo Weavers, here today with my co host and friend Janie McCarthy. On today's show, we will be talking about the Virgo topic of the asteroids, completing the horoscope's story. We have with us guest Jessica Adams, astrologer and expert on the asteroids. Hello, Janie, and welcome, Jessica hi hi it's lovely to hear from you again wonderful well, jessica nice to have you back with us mm. well before the invention of the telescope only the celestial bodies visible to the naked eye were used in astrology since the late 18th century discoveries of new planets asteroids centaurs Trans-Neptunian and other objects in our solar system have been increasing the potential cast of characters that can be used in the horoscope. Now, in astrology, the traditional planetary ruler of Virgo is Mercury, who also rules the side of Gemini. It never felt quite right to me that Mercury should rule Virgo. So back in 2006, I followed the lead of some pioneering astrologers out there and started to take a look at the asteroids as potential planetary rulers of the sign of Virgo. Janie and I are very eager to hear how you use the asteroids, Jessica.
3: So Rulers, sorry to interrupt you there, rulers um, is something I actually haven't even begun to look at, but tell me what you've been finding out.
2: Well, there's a lot of conflicting uh, opinions on that, and uh, some people feel, some astrologers feel that collectively, all of the asteroids are the ruler, or, you know, fractionated pieces of the ruling planet of of Virgo.
3: Oh, okay. Okay.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yes. In fact I read a myth or a story that postulated that once upon a time there was another planet in our solar system and for some reason it blew apart into, you know, many, many pieces which which formed the asteroids or became the asteroid belt between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. And so, uh, symbolically, these planetary fragments represent these fragments of the archetype, which uh, it corresponds to that characteristic of Virgo wanting to be discriminating and finding all the different parts and pieces and try to heal and hold them and uh, bring them together.
3: Mm, well, Virgo is about detail, isn't it? And it's about the finer points and therefore the asteroids are pretty virgoan because they do add to the vocabulary of astrology. And they, in my experience, using them for prediction over the last 10 years or so, they can help you finesse the meaning of what you're trying to articulate in a column, whether it's for cosmopolitan readers or whether it's for people who um, I used to make predictions for in New York for Bloomingdale's. Um, But basically, they want to know detail and they want to know specifics, and asteroids give us that.
2: Wonderful. Well, let's, let's begin for our listeners who perhaps don't know much about the asteroids. Uh, could you tell them what are the asteroids and how and when were they discovered?
3: Okay, so in modern astrology, 21st century astrology, we have to work with the whole family tree of astrology, which includes some of the asteroids, because of course there are millions of them, but also some trans-Neptunians as well. And when I say family tree, I mean the cast which completes the family that began with Jupiter and Saturn back before the telescope was invented. So what we're working with here are basically lumps of rock like any other lump of rock. But in this curious thing that we do called astrology, uh, which is based on synchronicity, what we're looking for is correlation or correspondence between a new discovery in the sky and life down here on Earth. And the extraordinary thing about the asteroids is that ever since we began working with them, since they were discovered, and the dwarf planets like Ceres, we found that the year of discovery correlates with the meaning of the original myth that gave the asteroid its name. Um, But again, I have to emphasize that we're only working with the heavenly bodies that complete the original family tree, and these are Roman Latin gods and goddesses. So,
4: I loved your quote in your asteroid article that asteroids run on synchronicity. So, explain the synchronicity of the discovery times and the namings of asteroids, particularly regarding any kind of world events that are going on, Jessica, and the archetypes that they come to represent in people's astrological charts.
3: Okay, so we could take um, an asteroid like Cupido, which, of course, is the Italian for Cupid. And he was uh, the son of Venus, and we associate him with love, right or wrong, because, of course, he's the cherub with the bow and arrow who pierces the heart and makes people fall in love with each other, whether it's appropriate or inappropriate. And he was discovered in the same year that Oscar Wilde went to jail for his love affair with a man, which was considered to be deeply shocking in Victorian England. But then we go right up to the 21st century... And we look at a transneptunian like Salacia, who is the wife of Neptune, and they found her in the same year as the Asian tsunami. So these asteroids and these other, these other heavenly bodies are really tying in with newspaper headlines.
2: Jessica, I've heard uh, different astrologers say, why should we use the asteroids? We already have so many planets in the chart, and there's so many things for us to look at in interpreting a horoscope. Uh, aren't we getting too many planets in the chart is, is one uh, complaint or comment that I've heard, which can make it more confusing. And um, there are millions of asteroids. So how do we decide which ones we should use?
3: That's quite true. In fact, I gave a lecture at an astrology conference in Australia and Michael Luton uh, from New York, obviously a very well-known astrologer, was in the audience and he said to me afterwards, You know, I have so much to work with already in the horoscope. Uh, But he was interested, and he was interested in the idea that, according to the astrological method, whenever we find something new that is related to the original astrology family, we end up with a new idea to work with. So based on the astrological method, we found Uranus in 1781, And Uranus was the latest and greatest addition to the original family tree, being the father of Saturn. So based on that, we now work with the idea that whenever something new comes along that is related to, by marriage or by birth, any of the original gods and goddesses, to be true to our astrology, we have to add it in. And that actually means that you only end up with about 34 horoscope factors, which isn't the millions that I think some astrologers fear. Mm -hmm. But what it does do is make your life easier as an astrologer because you're working with modern archetypes which are related to modern life. So with uh, women in particular, you now have many, many female archetypes to work with, not just the moon, which is about motherhood, not just Venus, which is about adulterous relationships, but you have asteroids like Diana uh, who never married or had children in the original myth, and who is a symbol of feminism.
4: So, many, so astrologers, many astrologers are now using uh, four of the asteroids on a regular basis, Ceres, now classified as a dwarf planet, Pallas oh. Athena, Juno, and Vesta. And... Oh. First, I'd love you to give us the cliff notes on what these particular four asteroids represent and tell us which ones you use and why, if you would, Jessica.
3: Sure. Well, the first one um, that I have to point out is Pallas Athena because she is the Greek predecessor of Minerva, who is the Roman goddess of wisdom. The reason that we're working with these four is that that is where the original ephemeris came from, and all that pioneering work that was done in the 70s and 80s gave us the tables for these four. But actually, to be consistent with the astrological method, we need to park Pallas to one side because the Romans wouldn't have known her and didn't use her. For them, Minerva was the evolved or developed version of her, who the original Greek goddess of wisdom. So... Try it yourself in your horoscopes to see how it pans out, but Minerva was Jupiter's daughter. She was his counsellor and advisor. She's often depicted with an owl, which is the bird of wisdom, and she was considered by the Romans to be the number one go-to woman if you wanted sage advice from the gods. So in your horoscope, Minerva is a symbol of wisdom and she's a symbol of a very particular female kind of wisdom. It's not uh, flashy and it's not showy. It's very deep. Um, and this comes to us because when she was uh, given a contest to compete with, with Neptune for the greatest gift to humanity, she came up with the olive, as opposed to the horse which Neptune presented. And although people at the time thought Neptune would have won, The ancients believed that the horse could also be used for war, and so Minerva was the victor. Um, That kind of thinking, which is about the small things, is very typical of Minerva. It's a very um, sage kind of wisdom that shows up in the chart. And the other three are definitely in the Roman family tree. Ceres is about the four seasons in the original myth. She is about sharing and compromising over power and control, and learning to accept winter and fall as well as spring and summer. And so in your horoscope, is a symbol of the need to let go and to accept and to work with one's changing fortunes. And she's a very potent force at the moment because she's in Capricorn alongside Pluto, who was her, her son-in-law in the original myth. So what we're seeing um, with China and the U.S., and corporates and Wall Street and all the rest, is this incredible need to um, accept seasonal change and highs and lows, which is showing up on well-share markets. So that's uh, that's two of them that you can check in your horoscope. Um, Vesta is Saturn's daughter, and she is a symbol, of basically, of gender issues because she comes to us from the Temple of the Vestal Virgins in Rome, which was a community of women, all virgins, who answered to one male authority, who was the Pontifex Maximus. So she tends to turn up when you have lots of women or two or more women and one man, and she always turns up in connection with questions about power and control in a gender setting. So whenever I have clients who are going through a love triangle, one man, two women, I always find Vesta is the culprit. And if you work with Vesta, you can usually fix those things. Uh, The other potent force in astrology when we're talking about these asteroids is Proserpina who you didn't mention but she is the daughter of Ceres so I would urge people to look at her as well
4: And do you use Juno?
3: I do use Juno, she's Jupiter's wife and she was discovered in the year that the Napoleonic Code came in which changed the way that people regarded marriage It was this extraordinary vision of the legal institution of marriage by Napoleon and it influenced marriage laws right through Europe and beyond. And Juno is uh, a good example of that synchronicity that we were talking about before in that she is always a symbol of commitment. And just as the real Juno uh, had advantages by marrying Jupiter, she gained status and prestige and comfort. Uh, There are also those things to look at with the But with Juno, you also tend to get the loss of freedom and autonomy. So there is always a sacrifice to be made with the commitment when Juno turns up.
2: Hmm. Jessica, you mentioned previously uh, how important it is to include the whole Latin or Roman family tree not just the gods, but also their wives, their sons, their daughters, all of their relationships. And uh, it, it makes sense to me that if we have more asteroids, those are more pieces of the puzzle, so to speak, we could use to flesh out the story of the horoscope. But I'm very interested in having you talk more about how we get even a more richer or complete understanding when we look at the relationships between all of these archetypes. You know, the wives, the sons, the daughters, those sorts of relationships.
3: Yes, it does um, fill out your understanding of Pluto considerably when you begin to realize that he also had a wife and a mother-in-law. And in fact, all our ideas about Pluto in astrology since 1930, when he was discovered and named, are based on the idea that Pluto is a symbol of power and control but nobody ever really fills in the gaps and the gaps are there because of his wife and his mother-in-law because he had the most almighty power struggle with Ceres in order to wrestle Proserpina away from her and when he got Proserpina she then realized that she had the power because she was the most wanted commodity between her mother and her husband and so the ideas that we have about Pluto Bringing about this incredible change in the balance of power, which come to us from the 1930s and 1940s, when the Second World War overtook us, all of that is really entrenched in this original story with these two missing female characters. When you work with them in the horoscope, you begin to understand Pluto and even be a bit more compassionate about Plutonian people and organisations because you begin to see that they're driven by passion. You know, they found that love heart on the face of Pluto recently, that kind of love heart shape. Yes. Yeah. That's (laughs) an incredible piece of synchronicity because he was driven by passion and he basically broke all the laws of nature to come up from Hades, from the underworld, onto Earth to take Proserpina, who was a beautiful young maiden, back to Hades with him. He was so obsessed with her that that's what he had to do. But with the Pluto story, uh, with Proserpina and Ceres as well, in your horoscope you begin to understand the process of power and how power has to be shared.
2: I'd, li- so- I'd like to continue on that particular storyline right now, if that's okay, um, because I'm, I've been so fascinated with that particular story in mythology out of all of the ones that, that we read about uh, as astrologers. And my particular interest in that was because I was – not quite satisfied with trying to understand on a deep level the, the sign of Scorpio being a, a feminine water sign. And it wasn't until I started looking at both Ceres and Proserpina, um, you know, the two female uh, relationships to Pluto, that I, I felt like I was starting to get a better handle on the theme of Scorpio.
3: Absolutely. It's um, an incredible education to look at the way that these three gods and goddesses worked out their issues with each other because Scorpio, people talk about Scorpio and they always kind of shrink back a bit and they say, well, you know, it's a scary sign. It's about sex and power and death and power and money and power. But where does all that come from? Pluto is actually quite difficult to fathom without understanding the three of them and Scorpio is, is very difficult to understand until you get inside the fact that Pluto was in charge of all the mineral wealth that lies underground, hence the connection with money and finance, that he was driven by passion and desire and that gives us the connection with sex and that the three of them were involved in the power struggle, which gives us the connection between money and power. So that's the Pluto story that fills out the Scorpio archetype, I guess.
4: Isn't that perfect? Isn't that perfect? <laughs> so, can you do the same thing for us archetypally with Jupiter? The, he was quite the philanderer, had a few yeah. wives, and many offspring. So, what, how can you enrich what it is we know about Jupiter through his family dynamics?
3: Yes, it's very useful knowing Jupiter's family tree because, as you would expect, it's enormous. So you begin with his wife, Juno, who tells you immediately that people are drawn to Jupiter because he represents opportunity and upgrade and advantage. And Juno wanted that because he was basically the god of all gods. So understanding why people fall for Jupiter types and organisations begins with Juno. But you also go to Jupiter's children to understand that he really didn't know the meaning of the word uh, limits or limitation. He was about excess. He was the father of not only Minerva, who we've just discussed, but he was also the father of Fortuna. And the father of the third girl, Diana, who we also mentioned earlier. And the three uh, daughters, are all basically beneficiaries or benefics in the horoscope, and they also let you know that Jupiter is essentially a good thing. Even when he's at his most excessive and there's much too much, he's essentially a healing figure in astrology. Diana is a tremendous symbol of female freedom, in fact freedom for anyone and anybody, and it's about independence without compromise, which is terribly important. And Fortuna is the wheel of fortune that you'll see in the tarot. And she spins the wheel so that it always ends up at the right place, no matter what. And then we go to the sons, who are also incredibly important because they bring with them more descendants. And Jupiter's son Apollo is a really good example of that because he was a kind of Roman superstar. A healer as well as a prophet and the leader of men. And Apollo had a son called Isculapius, who was the primary healer in Rome, he cured the plague. And, in fact, they had hospitals called Aesculapia, which were very real and very much part of uh, Roman life. And then Aesculapia went on to have two daughters called Hygieia and Panacea, who are named in the Hippocratic Oath that doctors take. So you begin to get this picture of this tremendous amount of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that's so typical of Jupiter that gives you the message that he's about excess but also the fact that they're all basically a good thing uh, reminds us that he's a symbol for hope.
2: So could you talk a little bit about Diana because she is one of those independent female archetypes. Uh, Could you flesh out her story a little bit more?
3: Yes, Diana was Artemis to the Greeks and you'll see her um, in New York actually. She's in the museum there uh, almost at the front door And she is a symbol for me of sex in the city in New York. She has that kind of totally independent female status. She was um, forever single in the myth, but she had lovers. She turned to Jupiter, her father, and requested a life free of marriage and children because she did not want to have the life that her mother had had. And so she's one of those archetypes that is very much about the 20th and 21st centuries because she represents freedom without compromise, particularly for women. But in a man's horoscope, she is also a really potent symbol of independence. And Diana uh, is always seen with a greyhound, usually with a bow and arrow. And she's always on one foot, as if she's about to run. You'll never see a statue of her standing still, because she is by nature a bolter. And she dislikes being tied to one spot or one person for very long. So this kind of restless, freedom-seeking archetype, particularly in a woman's chart, is an incredibly useful thing to know.
4: That's a great place for us to pause. Let's go to break, and we'll be back Continue our conversation with Jessica Adams on the topic of asteroids and their relationship to the sign of Virgo. We'll be right back.
0: Is the Seventh Wave Channel on the Voice America Network.
1: Janie McCarthy loves being a professional astrologer. Her academic pursuits in consciousness exploration, negotiations, and relationship transformation have been critical to helping her clients integrate their material and spiritual worlds. She is known for her ability to simplify and articulate even the most complex concepts to trigger aha moments of pure, meaningful, and lasting clarity. Janie is available for booking presentations, workshops, and client consultations and can be contacted at www.janiemccarthy.com.
0: Quantum Leaps in Healing with host Carrie Jahan will help you to explore powerful healing modalities that can change your vibration and enhance all aspects of personal health. Each week, the show will dive into a unique and transformative modality that works with multidimensional energies. The result is an incredible transformation of your life. Quantum Leaps in Healing can be heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave.
1: Mary Jo Weavers is a licensed spiritual health coach specializing in soul personality integration. A certified karmic astrologer, Mary Jo uses the symbolic language of astrology to help her clients understand themselves and their life experiences from a deeper spiritual perspective. Mary Jo can help you gain clarity about your life purpose, relationship dynamics, and how to live your life more effectively. She is available for astrological consultations in person, by phone, and Skype. Check out her website at www.merryjoweavers.com Are you ready to shift into higher consciousness? Are you
0: ready for contact with beings from higher dimensions? Ancient and new spiritual technologies will help you take that evolutionary step. Find out more about this powerful shift when you tune in to Conscious Evolution Radio with Ann Gelsheimer. Let's help humanity evolve, bringing in the best possibilities and ideas that our world needs right now. Conscious Evolution Radio can be heard live every Friday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel greater awareness.
1: You are listening to Astrology, the Theory of Everything. To reach the hosts or the guests today, please call 1-866-472-5795. Again, that's 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to astrotalkradio at icloud.com. Now, back to the show.
4: Welcome back. This is Janie McCarthy. I'm with my co-host, Mary Jo Weavers, and our special guest, Jessica Adams, who's been really filling in tremendous storylines about the asteroids and very appropriate to our sun sign month of Virgo, particularly when you consider the internal stress that a Virgonian dialogue can create within us when our fractured feminine psyche archetypes are having conversations among themselves. So what do you think, Jessica?
3: Absolutely, and I I always think of the horoscope of Elizabeth Taylor who had a lot of uh, feminine asteroid oppositions. She was obviously the Juno type because she was basically looking for marriage as often as she could, you know, sometimes twice with Richard Burton. But she also had this need to be free, and her way of manifesting that was to just have these incredibly dramatic make-or-break marriages Plenty of breakups with people like Larry Fortensky. You know, it sounds like ancient history now, but Elizabeth Taylor is such an incredible example of that fractured psyche. And she famously turned to drugs and alcohol to try and cope with it. Back then, the horoscope really only had two roads to female life. One was the moon and one was Venus. Today, you would look at the horoscope completely differently for somebody like her. And she's just one of a number of people I can think of who have a lot of inner conflict around old 20th century feminine archetypes and who are trying to figure out other ways to be a woman.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Let's talk about another Virgo theme here that you you touched on, Jessica, and started telling us about the asteroids that had to do with the theme of health and healing. Uh, Asclepius, was that one of the... Um, Sons of Apollo, who was a son of Jupiter. Mm.
3: Yeah, it's, it's an interesting healing dynasty, that one. People talk a lot about Chiron in astrology as the wounded healer, but in actual fact, Chiron was a herbalist. He was a medicinal herbalist, a centaur, who also had other functions quite apart from his work with herbs. And so for the Romans, from whom our astrology derives... Chiron was very much a minor player in healing and in health. The real star of the show was a god that the Greeks called Asclepius and the Romans called Aesculapius, who was actually imported to Rome to fix the plague that was overtaking the city. And that sounds very strange to us, but the Romans absolutely believed that he had come to Rome to save them. And he arrived in the form of a snake, So the snake was basically taken off the ship, installed in a temple, and apparently miraculous healing began, which is why you'll see this god uh, in sculpture particularly depicted with a snake wrapped around a staff or a rod, and that symbol you will still see on ambulances today. It is associated with health and healing for a lot of reasons that doctors probably don't even know, but going back 2,000 years, this was the original snake that was supposed to have been the God-made manifest. So he is, to us, a symbol of resurrection and revival, quite miraculous resurrection because Isculapius was the God that you went to when you had cancer, when there was no hope. Mm. And I think the synchronicity around this is that I just heard Jimmy Carter has cancer. Yeah, Mm. so we're discussing Isculapius on on top of this really uh, difficult headline to deal with. Uh, But I also just read that there is hope for him, that the prognosis is excellent. And that's a very Isculapius thing to say, because Mm. this symbol is about coming back from the brink. And it often turns up when there are projects or organizations or even homes, which people have given up on, which are due for some kind of resurrection, So Isculopius is the number one healer really in the modern horoscope and his two daughters also represent different aspects of health because Hygieia, as you might expect, is to do with preventative medicine. Good health and hygiene prevent disease and she is a symbol for preemptive action in the horoscope to prevent the worst from happening. And her sister Panacea, is about the ethical uh, rights and wrongs, the moral questions that surround medicine. And that's something that the Romans were also very interested in.
4: Hmm. Jessica, we don't have any collective mythological reference in astrology to a fractured masculine psyche. Does this absence suggest anything to you?
3: I think that's also a hangover from 20th century astrology when we worked with a very limited sky, one of the things that happens with astrology is that when the collective is ready to discover a new idea about being male or female, a planet or an asteroid or another heavenly body turns up. And through synchronicity, astronomers decide to give it the name of a myth that is somehow peculiarly tried into what's happening historically. So with the progress of men and masculinity through the 20th century, We were pretty much stuck with Mars for a really long time, the God of War, and then men really uh, didn't advance very much until we got to look at archetypes like Apollo, who was the first bisexual god to be given his name to an asteroid. And he is a symbol of uh, a very new kind of sexuality that men just didn't have access to publicly at least 100 years ago. So for me, he's a really interesting one to look at in the chart. Hmm.
2: And just as when a new celestial body is discovered that opens up a whole new level of understanding of of humanity and our psyche, what happens when astronomers reclassify celestial bodies? How does that influence their delineation or interpretation astrologically?
3: Well, the funny thing is that astronomers have always served astrology even when they are at their most skeptical And I know that most astronomers are skeptics, having met quite a few of them. But the truth is that when they reclassified Ceres from asteroid to dwarf planet and also demoted Pluto at exactly the same conference, they were doing something that completely resonated with astrology and with the original myth. There's absolutely no way that they were consciously doing this, but by basically bringing her up and bringing him down, They were echoing the original story from 2,000 years before. And so the reclassification of her from asteroid to dwarf planet, basically giving her a promotion, echoes what happened. In the original story, when Jupiter decided that Pluto had to give up Proserpina for six months a year and accept a compromise, he basically disempowered him. He demoted him and he elevated Ceres and upped her status. So what the astronomers were doing uh, for us as astrologers is fascinating because it tells the story of the myth, but it's doing it through science.
2: Hmm. That's so interesting because in our culture, we tend to think that science is what drives everything and then the astrology follows behind. But here, it's as if the collective consciousness knew that something wasn't quite right about the original labeling of Pluto and his story, and uh, the the correction was made uh, by having the astronomers reclassify those two characters in mythology.
3: Hmm. Yes, it's absolutely extraordinary what happened, and in fact, that was the turning point for me as an astrologer, when they basically demoted Pluto. I think one astronomer says that he killed Pluto, which is incredible, and they (laughs) elevated Ceres. I began to look at the whole of my astrology differently that year. I think this was back in 2006. So for around nine, ten years now, I've been looking at the horoscope on that basis, that if suddenly Pluto is thrown out of the solar system and an asteroid becomes a dwarf planet, he's equal, then shouldn't we also be looking at the daughter of Ceres, the wife, the whole point of the, the conflict between them? And if we're going to do that and she's an asteroid, then shouldn't we be looking at the whole family? That's really what led me into this.
2: It makes sense. Tell so us a ast- little, oh, sorry, Janie. That's um, okay,
3: dear. Go to, ahead.
2: To continue on the same myth, which I personally find so fascinating, um, I'm curious to have you talk a little bit about uh, Proserpina and what she brings into the horoscope and what she represents.
3: She is one of those asteroids who have incredible synchronicity uh, with fruit, believe it or not. I don't know if you call it a pomegranate in the US. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So the pomegranate is one of those symbols that turns up with uncanny frequency when people talk about Proserpina in the horoscope or they begin to look at her in the chart. And I really can't explain it, but I have seen that fruit or pictures of that fruit turn up so often. And the fruit is crucial because... It was on that basis that Jupiter decided her fate because when he was called in to rescue the situation where Proserpina had been abducted by Pluto and Ceres was basically deep in grief and rage about it, Jupiter decided that he would ask Proserpina the question if she had eaten the pomegranate while she was in the underworld and the pomegranate was, of course, a euphemism for sex. And she said that she had eaten half of it. And so Jupiter decreed that she should spend half the year with Pluto and half the year with her mother Ceres. And that is why we we associate Proserpina with anyone who is at the heart of a sharing situation or a compromise situation. She turns up very often with child custody cases Mm. or with a work situation where people have to job share. And the interesting thing about Proserpina is that she holds all the power. She began life really very much under her mother's thumb. But when she became Pluto's bride, she became terribly powerful as the queen of Hades and, of course, his bride. And so she elevated her own status. But her situation is also precarious because she must please her husband and her mother. So proserpina in the horoscope is a symbol of power but also the rather difficult position of bridging the gap between two powerful sides or two powerful people. And she was discovered in a year, which was very big for bridges and for tunnels. So we also associate her with anyone or anything that bridges the gap. Hmm.
4: It it occurs to me that someone that is getting married and about to bring in in in-laws that hopefully will have a healthy relationship with the new husband, that she might be useful to take a look at.
3: Absolutely. And in fact, any situation with in-laws, you always look towards those three players to figure out what the dynamic is. And also, if I have a woman presenting with depression uh, who's basically gone on strike from life or withdrawn from life, I always look for Ceres in the horoscope. She's also a potent symbol of depression in men. But with women in particular who are approaching menopause or post-menopause, She's also a really good clue to look for because people who are not in touch with their series may be out of touch with their rage or their loss. It's a pretty deep symbol. Um, I'm sure we could talk more about it, but if you have any of those issues in a client's chart, definitely have a look. And definitely have a look at uh, women leaving the family home to marry because that's often the turning point too.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm. In the myth, uh, series had to do quite a bit of adjustment um, losing her daughter, Proserpina, and uh, ha- having to readjust. And I imagine for both of them, mother and daughter, when Proserpina returns above ground and spends half of the year with her mother, that their relationship must have been totally changed.
3: Absolutely. And when you look at them in the horoscope, you can even look at it in the horoscope of China and the US at the moment. There's always a tremendous need to compromise and to accept that everyone has to take turns and everyone has to share, and this is so true of the share markets at the moment. So it works on that corporate level as well because Ceres and Pluto are both in Capricorn, but on a personal level in a a client's chart, what you're really looking at here is the question about empowerment and disempowerment and the need to accept that not everybody can be the winner all the time and that everyone has their own spring and summer, their own fall and winter to deal with and that it's not a disaster, you know, when you hit fall or winter.
4: hmm When you work with the asteroids in a chart, what orbs do you use?
3: I use naught to 1 degree orbs, which is quite radical. But again, that's something that I began doing, I guess, from 2006, because I realized that if we use the traditional 9 degree orb, and some astrologers use a 12 degree orb, we end up with a chart that looks like a pizza, you know. It's far too crowded. So working with those naught to one degree orbs made sense logically, but it also created very precise sacred geometry in the horoscope. So the patterns that I was seeing were these extraordinary triangles. Some of them were even ancient, ancient symbols that you only see in medieval churches. And all these patterns were arising because I was suddenly working with very precise geometry. And I do recommend trying it. If you haven't tried it, try adding more factors to the horoscope but pulling back on the orb that you're using.
2: Hmm. And you're using this um, this uh, smaller orb for not just the asteroids but for all of the planets and luminaries in the chart. Is that correct?
3: That is correct. And uh, it's a radical rethink of astrology because I was taught uh, to use the Placidus house system Mm -hmm. and also taught to use nine-degree orbs, as I guess many of us are. Yes. I just wanted to try it and see, because I was a predictive astrologer, um, asking really the horoscope to give me precise predictions. I was very open to trying different techniques, and I began testing these by looking at the Second World War and the history of that to see if there was anything there. And then I turned to questions that were unanswered, like the 1929 Wall Street crash, because I'd never really been satisfied with the charts for that. And then to my amazement, I was finding that using this naught degree orb method with planets as well as asteroids, I was seeing really, really exact pointers to specific days. So I've stuck with it ever since.
4: Hmm. What did you figure out about the crash of 29?
3: Well, uh, the culprit there was Mercury Retrograde. And basically it all began with the RCA, the Radio Corporation of America, and they overvalued shares. And radio being a Mercury thing, you really need to go back to this, the whole of the Mercury retrograde cycle around September, October 1929, including the shadow period, which is terribly important. That was the trigger. But the larger patterns were very much about Taurus and Scorpio. So what we were being told back in 1929 is that people had to value things more than money and that people had to value more to life the money because if you didn't, you know, you'd be jumping off a skyscraper off Wall Street, which is tragically what people were doing. So it was a really big Taurus Scorpio moment for us.
4: Hmm. I wonder if anybody ever wrote about the astrological impact, an uh, analysis in that way. Did you come across anything that had that particular analysis pointed out?
3: The only thing I've ever read about 1929 is that very famous book, Tunnel Through the Air, by W.D. Gann. And Gann was a very successful 1920s financial astrologer who wrote a novel. It's not a particularly good novel. It's sort of like a bad romance, but he didn't write it for fictional purposes. He wrote it to disguise his secrets in code. So there are plenty of characters in the book who disappear and then return um, which is a retrograde thing. And Gann definitely knew what was going on in 1929. And if you're into financial astrology, that book is worth reading because a great many of the secrets that he knew are hidden in its pages.
2: Hmm. Jessica, you, you've been talking about um, testing the orbs for projective uh, astrology, you know, using the smaller orbs. I, I've read in one of your articles that you... Began testing asteroids for their arc accuracy in natal charts of some well-known people uh, to see the efficacy or the value of using asteroids. And one of your examples was the um, asteroid Psyche and its placement in Carl Jung's chart. And since Janie and I are both great fans of Carl Jung, I'd, I'd wonder if you tell us about that.
3: Yeah, that was a great discovery because, of course. He popularized the word psyche and maybe even came up with the entire word or concept. You would know more than I would, but I couldn't believe it when I saw a perfect Saturn psyche square in his chart, and it was where you would expect it to be because it occurred between the signs of Aquarius and Taurus, and it was his friendship, Aquarius, with Freud, which was the cross that he really had to bear. And Taurus is about what you preserve, you know, financially or materially. And his home, uh, Bollingen, which is still there today, ended up becoming the container for so many of his ideas. I think he even sculpted and did woodwork in that home, which reflected his belief system. So as an example of asteroids working, you know, you really only have to look at Psyche in his horoscope to get it. Hmm.
4: Interesting. It- So, our listeners, after being so stimulated by the impact that asteroids can have in their charts, and if they've not previously investigated asteroids, where can they find information? Where can they find out where their sign and degree of particular asteroids are in not just their natal, but also in transits?
3: So the natal horoscope, there is a website called serenu.com, and I'll just spell that. It's S-E-R-E-N-U.com, and that's run by an astrologer called Tracy who lives in Wales in a place called Serenu. And Tracy is a programmer with a tremendous interest in asteroids. I'm fairly sure you can just go there right now, enter in your time, place, and date of birth, and get a whole lot of asteroids back. You can also pick up... Uh, a complimentary ebook about asteroids. If you're a premium member of my website, which is jessicaadams.com, and if you want to enter in the numbers of the asteroids, you can use astro.com to do that with your child.
2: Wonderful, and Jessica, tell us about the series of 35 books you are writing called Modern Astrology because I understand those are also going to be an excellent resource for us to use the asteroids and find out more about them?
3: I hope so. I'm working on them now and they will be very short books because people don't have a lot of time to go into things at the moment because astrology is expanding so much. But they'll also be very concise and to the point. And I think the first one will probably be out in the first quarter of next year with uh, illustrated um, virtual galleries with some art that highlights the meaning of the asteroids and how to use them in your horoscope.
4: Hmm. Are there 35 books because each is about a different asteroid?
3: Yes, there are about 34 uh, factors in the modern horoscope. So I have one book which is basically an introduction to the system, including those very narrow orbs that I'm working with. And then the other 34 will go through the traditional planets like Saturn and Jupiter but also give equal weight to asteroids like Psyche.
2: Well, that's wonderful. We look forward to to uh, seeing that resource come out and uh, because I've been a big fan of your very precise and easy-to-understand um, descriptions of each asteroid that you have on your website, and those are also a good reference for people who want to learn a little bit about what a particular asteroid might
4: mean or indicate in their chart. Oh, thank you so much. And speaking of the synchronicity of asteroids, I was introduced to asteroids by Mary Jo. We had started, yes, we had started, I had looked at centaurs. I had done a lot of work with Chiron, but I had not gotten involved in research on asteroids. And Mm -hmm. she brought to my attention an asteroid that was in my 12th house conjunct my ascendant and how important it was for me to take a good look. And it turned me on. The <laughs> information that came through, the importance of it and also the relevance of it in my life at that particular time was truly what got me interested in asteroids and the link that it has to our Jungian perspective of astrology is huge because of how it helps us understand the fragmentation of the female feminine, I should say, psyche. So it was a, it was a wonderful time in my life to have mm-hmm. that brought to my attention by Mary Jo. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. It's incredible. They do sort of crash through and they can, this synchronicity when you begin talking about them can be quite staggering. You know, I met Jermaine Greer, the author of The Female Eunuch, Under a Statue of Diana,
2: which Wonderful. was just
3: just extraordinary. And, I mean, Jermaine Greer is totally skeptical about astrology. I don't think she likes astrology very much, but she did talk to me about her mother giving birth to her and having a difficult birth under the statue of Diana. Just extraordinary.
2: Well, thank you, both Janie and Jessica. This has been so wonderful to discuss asteroids today, but it's time for us to end our show. And uh, you can find out more about Jessica at JessicaAdams.com. And we hope you will join us next week when we discuss another Virgo topic on our show titled Animal Assisted Therapy, Pets Serving Us with guest Dr. Aubrey Fine, a practitioner of and a recognized authority in animal assisted therapy. Thank you for joining us today on Astrology the Theory of Everything. You can find us on Facebook at AstroTalk Radio where you can share your insights and comments with us. Link up with Janie and me on LinkedIn. And we can continue our conversation about the asteroids on Twitter with hashtag AstroTalkRadio.
1: Thank you for being a part of the show today. Please join Janie McCarthy and Mary Jo Weavers again next week for another edition of Astrology, The Theory of Everything. We're live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America's 7th Wave Channel. May the stars be with you.